Oh, we better start that over. Here we go. Welcome to The Landing, the podcast that goes into the brush with foresters, contract loggers, and operators of the Pacific Northwest timber industry. Welcome back to The Landing, everyone. I'm your host, Jason Davenport, and today I have the honor of speaking with uh, Brett Gilkison. Brett, how are you doing today? I'm really good, Jason. How are you doing? I am doing pretty good. It's finally Friday, as they say, so I'm looking forward to having a couple days of uh, relaxation. That's kind of my story, other than hopefully I'll be packing out some deer for some friends, which is slim chance, but I'm looking forward to the opportunity. Yeah, hopefully. Anything you can do to put meat in the freezer right now is a good thing. Exactly. So you're kind of, um, how could I say, um, you guys have been in the industry around here for a long time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Your family has at least, and so... How long have you been logging and what got you into it? Well, I've been logging since I graduated from high school in 81. And then the summers before that, probably since the ninth, eighth or ninth grade. And uh, my memories go back as far as going to work with dad as just a little kid back when uh, they were salvaging the Oxbow Burn in the late 60s. Oh, that's cool. And yeah, ever since then, I've just, I've had the bug and can't get away from it. And it's, I've always thought it's one of those occupations, either love or hate. And I'm one of the people that just happened to love it. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, that, mm-hmm. there is something to that, though. There's some jobs that are like that. You either love them or you hate them. There's not really a, yeah, I just do it because it's a job. Mm-hmm. And I've always had the theory that if you love what you do for a living, you'll never have to work a day in your life. So you've been doing this since 81 full time. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you've had to work very many of those days? Uh, there's been a few, but probably I would say a good 90% of them have been uh, looking forward to getting to the job and working with a lot of the people that, I was fortunate enough to meet through the years and make friends of, and some of them I've made extremely good friends of and just the life experiences and values it's taught me is absolutely priceless. I believe that I I was listening to a different podcast earlier today. It's like a business podcast. And the guy was saying, um, you know, people of the older generations, right? Like he was talking about a guy that was in his sixties and, um, the man on the podcast, I think he's like 38 or 40. He goes, how would he not know better than me? He's got, you know, 20 years on me of just of life. And I, I've been thinking about that all day. Um, (laughs) kind of regardless of what you think people may or may not know, like just 20 years of life experience is huge. Oh, definitely. Yeah and the work ethic and everything involved is just, uh, it it goes so strong to, uh, how good of a person, how good of a worker a person is and how they get along with their crew and everything. And then it goes back to loving what you do. Yeah. 
Oh, it definitely does always seems like it goes back to that because it seems to keep you motivated when you're happy too. Oh, extremely. Yeah. Although you had experience, you know, as a kid going to work with uh, your dad and stuff, like what did you start out doing right out of high school? Were you setting chokers? Yeah, I just uh, did every rung on the ladder. I started out setting chokers and then uh, got to run skitter a little bit and then got to run shovel between turns when I'd get to work with a shovel operator gracious enough to let me run shovel. And uh, usually that was on the old line machines. And uh, fortunately, Dad was pretty darn good at helping me uh, try to learn how to run a line machine from the time I was about 12 years old. And another big influence there would have been Lester McClure. He's one of the old top-notch Link Belt 98 operators that I got to work with through the years. And uh, just a a passion I'd always had to to run a Link Belt 98 ever since I seen Dad run one when I was a little kid. Fortunately, I I got to do it for years and years. And uh, before that, though, he made damn sure that I... I did every job below that as far as uh, setting chokers, pulling rigging, chasing, and running yarder, and everything else involved, and uh, running processor, which in my day was a, a stale 056. <laughs> <laughs> or for some outfits, it was an old Pioneer, some old boat anchor like that. Yeah, some 40 pound power saw. Exactly, with a 36-inch bar. <laughs> but, yeah, glad a thing for a 130-pound kid to be dragging around the landing for nine hours a day. Yeah. That's... But enjoyed every second of it. I always thought that chasing would be kind of fun. It, it really was back in the day before uh, processors came on board because there was so darn much, especially on a slack line yard or, you know, he was always building coils or bumping knots or branding logs or unbelling turns. You know, there's just, you were busy all day long. The days probably went by pretty quick then, though. They did. They really did. So, how long did you run a 98 link belt for? Oh, probably a total of, uh, I would say, 25 years. Because I've heard stories, Brett, and I'm not bullshitting you right now. I have Mm -hmm. heard some stories, and people say that um, you are the man to see run a 98 link belt. And I want one of these days, I'm going to see you run one. Wow. Well, thank you. Yeah. I, I, you know, I I worked around so many of them, and I got to work around some of the best, and I got to work around some of the worst, and... I'm going to borrow a, uh, a saying from dad that, you know, that somebody had asked him, you know, well, who taught you the most when he was working in the woods? And dad said, well, everybody that did it wrong. And uh, I thought, man, there is a, there is a lot of grit to that. And uh, I, I was fortunate enough just to be barely smart enough to pay attention to everybody that had done it wrong and uh, 
of course, tried to pay attention to the guys that did it right, too. But you can sure learn a lot from both ends of the aspect. Well, I think that that's a really good point. I never thought about it that way. It's like, you know, you learn from the guys that do it wrong and you learn exactly how not to do it. Exactly. Yes. Yep. So running one of those machines, it's not like sitting in a cab with a pallet control hydraulic, uh, you know, shovel or something like that. Like what all goes into running a line machine? Oh, it's kind of like running an old mechanical yarder other than the, the levers are hydraulic assist, but uh, the brakes are all mechanical and and uh, everything's just forward and back on the levers and a whole lot of hand-eye coordination, which I'm surprised I could hit the ground with the grapples <laughs> running one no more coordinated than I am. But yeah, and it's uh, it's definitely a lot more physical to operate one than a hydraulic shovel. But uh, it's I always looked at it as an art, and uh, to be to be good at it, you had to have an extreme passion for it. Well, because that was before the days of the nice air conditioned cabs with the extra cushioned seats, and you know that was long <laughs> before a Cat Five Sixty Nine. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> the luxury model. But I know my last one, which. Uh, so many people in the industry know it was affectionately named Chester. Well, uh, it was the second to last link belt sold new at uh, Howard Cooper in the early 80s. But anyway, I'd, uh, I'd insulated the cab and uh, didn't have air conditioning, but it had a really good heater in it and then uh, even had satellite radio in it. Did it really? Yeah. Huh. Yep. And of course, you know, a really nice stereo and the whole nine yards tried to, tried to make it, you know, the, the ultimate line machine with all the creature comforts. Right. And, the, and of course it had the, the CB in it for bullshitting, which I'm quite the master at that. <laughs> That's the most important part sometimes. <laughs> exactly. Yep. The, so it's kind of cool having you on because a lot has changed in the industry since you started. <clears throat> um, yeah. So I kind of want to get your thoughts on what of that has been good and what of it has been, you know, kind of detrimental to the trade, if you will. Well, uh, from the employee aspect of it, uh, like when I started, there was uh, – Oh, a steady string of crummies going up and down 58 or 126 every morning. And you never really had to, had to beg for a job or anything. If you wanted a job, if you didn't have one in two phone calls, well, that kind of told yourself you were a call. Right. But uh, anyway, the things were so different then because it was 90% yarders, you know, and 10% cat sides and, uh, skitter sides. But, uh, nowadays, as far as ground labor goes, uh, that's, that's a pretty, pretty minimal part of the workforce, really, you know, and it's, uh, it's, it's kind of a thing that you, you, 
you can't find as many people as what you'd like to to sufficiently operate one side without becoming totally compromising on your health. And if, if you have found enough people to make it an operation run totally efficient and, uh, Oh shit. What am I trying to say? Uh, if, if everything is flowing real well on one of those sides where you've been fortunate enough to find enough help, you're, you're extremely lucky. And I know there are a few sides like that out there where, uh, people have been fortunate enough to find extremely good help to keep their, their logging sides going, their cable sides. But, uh, like me and Mike, when we decided to sell the tower, it was because there was just such a lack of, uh, good quality help to totally operate a, a tower side sufficiently that we just, we couldn't do it, even though it was offering a top wage and all the benefits and everything that the the help wasn't out there. The work ethic has been lost in a greater percentage of the people out there. But fortunately, when uh, we decided to shut down, there were a few people left that kept the wheels turning for us until we shut down. But uh, there's just such a loss of... Uh, manual labor people as far as like rigging crews and chasers and hand cutters and stuff like that compared to what it was back in the eighties. Yeah. I remember I went and seen you guys, you were, you and pumpkin was processing on a Saturday and, uh, that 90 all rigged up sure was cool to see. Yeah. That was, uh, that was our baby that we'd bought. Oh, let's see. I think it was uh, 2007 or eight, I believe, when we finally bought it. But we'd actually ordered it and almost bought it brand new just a couple of years after we'd started the outfit. But we decided it was just a little bit too much to bite off for a company just starting out trying to get on their feet. And then we started out with an old 009 Medill originally, and when we decided to update and ordered that PY90, well, it just it kind of scared the daylights out of us, the price and everything. So we found a really late model to use 737, and uh, we ended up having that for 19 years and logged some actually hellacious jobs with it, like up Quartz Creek on Roseboro ground, which... Uh, Anybody that's worked up there knows that that's pretty unforgiving country up there and should require like BU-98 or 739, something like that. But uh, after 19 years of that 737, we decided that it was time to update because fatigue was setting in with it and everything. So we looked around and we found a TY-90 up in Washington and, uh, we ended up going up and looking at it and bought it. We'll come to find out it was the one that we'd actually ordered new and some studs ended up buying it new. And uh, yeah. So after 19 years, we finally ended up with the the yarder that we had actually ordered. And uh, it was was a long time coming, but man, once we got it, it was such a step up. We had a 739 there in the interim real shortly, but it was one that was, 
pretty long in the tooth and needed a lot of work. I think we only had it about eight or nine months and then uh, got rid of it once we found this TY90. But uh, talk about a superior slack line for being a one-piece move and speed and power and rigability and everything. But, uh, yeah, and I just went up a week and a half ago and helped the new owners uh, rig it up, uh, even some logging in Klatsk and I bought it and uh, completely went through it. They put everything except for the tinware, the frame, and uh, the tube is brand new on it. All the shafts, brakes, power, hoses, everything imaginable. It's basically a brand new TY90. It was uh, honestly just about an emotional event for me to go up and rig it up for maybe one last time. But uh, that was the the baby that me and Mike and dad had always wanted. And uh, it was sad to see it go due to the health situation and the way the mills are and everything now. It's uh, there's, There's a few mills around and timber companies that they don't have the loyalty that they used to. It used to be a a few mills around and timber companies had a loyalty to them that would help make them gentlemen of the industry. But, but anymore, that's, that's kind of a a lost thing with the better part of them. But once again, it is. Yeah. But once again, you know, there are a couple of them out there that are still, pretty honest and good to their word. Just got to find those ones to work for. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. You'd be shitting in tall cotton if you did. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so <clears throat> I guess I skipped a couple parts here, Brett. Um, I know you guys and I've known you for quite a while now, but you know, a lot of these folks listening might not know you. So, mm-hmm. um, can you give us a rundown on the, the history of uh, Gilkson and Dad logging? Yeah. Uh, me and Mike and Dad had all worked for several several different outfits through the years. And uh, my dad had worked since 1954 in the woods. And it had always been his dream to have his own logging outfit. And uh, a couple of times that it came close in the early seventies and, and a couple times since then, but, uh, in November of 84, uh, an outfit had a 009 Medill rubber mount one that was for sale. And so we, we, dad made a deal on it and, uh, we just thought, well, we're going to jump in with both feet. And we, uh, went to work for Kettyback Lumber on a, Forest Service sale they had up the top of the San Diego Pass on Hackleman Creek. And uh, we logged that job and then another one down on Foley Ridge for Cuddyback. And then it wasn't long after that that Cuddyback had shut down. And I hope we weren't part of the credit for that. But uh, hopefully not. <laughs> yeah. But we called around and called around. And that was in the early 80s when uh, the owl was really starting to take a hold and uh so finally dad got a hold of uh international paper and 
we went to work for them and uh, logged for them for, I believe it was 13 years. And uh, just a couple of years after we went to work for them, well, we, we updated with the 737 and stayed there until uh, Roseburg Lumber bought them out. And when Roseburg Lumber bought them out, well, it kind of went back to the the loyalty thing. You know, they had such a debt with buying all the IP holdings and everything that it just, everything went to strictly the lowest bid on the logging jobs. And we didn't want to have to buy a job just to keep, keep rolling. Right. So we just, we just parked everything and it set for a little while and, at a car show, I'd met a now a friend of mine, Terry Damon. He was the contract administrator for Roseboro, and uh, got to talking to him and uh, said that they were in need of a slack line logger. And so we went to work for them and worked for them for oh about I think it was about the same amount of time we logged for those people, and then uh, they reorganized, which. Uh, Oh, the family just wanted to to sell off their their holdings and everything, and capitalize on the the profits they could from it, and then went to work for uh, Justina Resources, and uh, we were there until the the help situation and everything else I've kind of touched on there kind of took hold, and so we decided just to throw the towel in as far as slackline logging goes, and. Uh, me and Mike are now at that age where we're just doing little little farmer patches and uh, just just me and Mike, and then we'll hire a couple guys to do the cutting and be it hand cutting or uh, like Ryan Goins, he'll do our buncher work for us and does an absolute beautiful job. But uh, yeah, so there we are. We've uh, me and Mike have come around to where it's just just me and him and uh we haven't been this happy in years you know the the aspect of having to run a daycare or i mean a excuse me a, a logging outfit is <laughs> kind of behind us now well, i would imagine it's a lot less stress now oh fuck yeah it's uh it is it's back to being an absolute joy to go to work and if we want to go ahead and bullshit for half an hour or whatever in the morning while we're drinking coffee and warming up equipment. Well, that's what we'll do, but we'll still put in a full day. Right. And so it's, it's pretty darn enjoyable. So you just have the one side now, just you and Mike, um, just shovel logging and cat logging then now, Brett. Exactly. Yeah. yeah we bought a, a five twenty seven one. Uh, 527 cat when we started doing what we're doing and we kept the the old 330 that we'd bought new in 2001 well we still have it and it's uh, everything on it's been rebuilt so it's a pretty darn solid old shovel and it's like part of the family now Yeah. but uh, anyway we, we bought a, a 320 cat loader it, because these little farmer jobs and stuff. There's so many places that get through a 12 foot gate or just the 
sprinkling a rock or something on somebody's driveway or something. It's not quite as uh, catastrophic to it as what the old 330 would be. Right. And so we do that. We, we still kept the dangle head for processing because we're a couple lazy old bastards that would rather run it than uh, get out with a power saw, which I don't know if we call that lazy or smart, but it's sure a hell of a lot more comfortable than a, than a saw. <laughs> I'd say it's a smart way to do it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but yeah. And then we, we, we also bought a, a five fifteen cat skitter years ago for snapping trucks and like helping snap the yarder up the hill and stuff, you know, when we'd have, Oh, like moving from the bottom of gate Creek up the top or a lot of those places on, Quartz Creek. Well, we we bought it, and as it turns out, it fits just what we're doing to a T right now. On a lot of those jobs, between that and the five twenty seven, we're pretty well armed. Yeah, I would say so. That's um, <clears throat> those five twenty sevens are pretty badass machines. Yeah, yeah. And this is a later modeled one with a longer track frame, mm. and uh, it's. It, it, it's so darn fast, you know, we, we have a name for it that I, I really don't want to say here because <laughs> the racial remark of it, but it's, it's kind of like the looters in, in Chicago or like in Florida right now. It's, it's really good at running in there and grabbing shit and just taking off running with it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's one that is one machine that i don't understand why no one is back in that market right now as a manufacturer oh yeah you know and uh i'd run quite a few fmc's back in the day because they were the hot rod of the day when uh i was out there you know between yarder jobs skitter logging and stuff well uh like Elvin Carter had an FMC, Future had three or four of them, and Christian or Future had some, and uh, it just uh, and there was there was a lot of them around, and they were a real hot rod, but there was so many of the young guys they'd put on them. Well, they wouldn't care if they pasted a stump or something with the tracks, you know, breaking road wheels and road arms and stuff like that. So they were. They were a pretty fragile piece of equipment, but man, when they were in working order, they were pretty ferocious. Do you think they would outwork the 527? Oh, by no means whatsoever. No, but, you know, as far as anything else in their day, they were the top They were top shelf, definitely. Huh. Yeah. So there's some pretty, pretty wild country up there where you guys you know, logged a lot, especially on like the Roseboro side of stuff up on Wyckoff and like, that's some pretty straight, pretty vertical country up there. Um, Oh yeah. You ever have any close calls moving the yarder or anything like that? Uh, there's been a few times when, uh, Oh, like it, it just becomes just a regular thing where like if I was running cat on the back of the yarder and we were moving it with a truck or something, well, yeah, just damn near every move up there, you'd have to carry the back of the yarder around the corner with the blade of the cat, you know, scoot it sideways and stuff, be at the tube to clear the trees on the outside of the corner or to keep the 
yarder out of the canyon. And then a lot of times you, you wouldn't have a truck, but you definitely have an eight on the front and eight on the back just to, just for enough power and traction to get up a hill to get to a landing. I know the first job that we had that PY90 on, well, most people can see it from Highway 126 or uh, Girder Reservoir Junction. If you look off to the southwest, that big rock face up there was the first job we had with it. And uh, the landing on top, we were able to back it into the setting with the truck, but the next setting was right off the little hogback ridge there where we had to back it down the hill probably a quarter of a mile, I guess. And then the landing was so narrow and sharp off the edges that uh, it was basically a swing landing. And I know a lot of this generation thinks uh, a swing yarder is something that'll yard it, turn up the hill, and then swing it off the side. Well, back in the day, a swing yarder was a yarder that you'd yard a deck to partway down through a unit and then swing them up to the landing with another yarder up the top. And that's basically what this was. But the machines we used to pull the logs up to the top of the hill was with a couple of cat skitters that we had at the time because mm-hmm. there was, there, there wasn't room to uh, deck anything on that bottom landing where we backed the yarder down to, there was just barely enough to swing the, Barely enough room to swing the shovel around where we'd get the logs out where the skidders could grab a hold of them and then drag them to the top of the hill where I would uh, load and process up the top. And so that's that's how nasty some of that ground up there on uh, Quartz Creek and Wyckoff is. Yeah, there's one spot on Wyckoff. I was riding with a log truck driver one time, and uh, it's just the road is just the top of the ridge and it is straight up and down on both sides. And I thought, you know, this would be a bad spot to blow a steer tire, have something go wrong. Yeah. Yep. And it seemed like there for, I don't know, four or five years in a row, we got stuck up there on Harvey mountain, which is at the top of Wyckoff on the main ridge. that runs out to like above Cougar reservoir dam. And that's where we would be like into the depths of winter up there. And so trucks have chains on every axle going down Wyckoff. And uh, a couple of them didn't quite make it all the way down there without getting all, all screwed up. And uh, it was a pretty normal thing to get up there a couple hours early and plow snow so they could still be going. But, you know, the, the wood up there was... Uh, unbelievable as far as how nice a wood it was and, and the size and everything where you could actually log it with a bunch of snow on the ground right. and still find the logs. But, yeah, and that's, that's something else. Uh, got to see the transition of uh, old growth to second growth while we were working there at IP is we'd uh, logged a whole lot of old growth and through the years there and then it got to where uh, it was the second growth was getting big enough to where they were starting to log it and uh, it was 
one of those situations where you, you really couldn't wrap your head around the fact that there's just logging these goddamn weeds, but, <laughs> but nobody else wanted to do those jobs. And, uh, dad told us, you know, it, it may not be the big pretty stuff that we're used to logging, but we're sure doing a hell of a lot better because nobody else wants to log this shit. Right. And so we, <laughs> we kind of opened our eyes and mind to the fact that when we, did that stuff we were doing pretty darn good monetarily but uh-huh. so moving yeah. into logging the second growth that nobody else wanted to log you guys probably stayed a lot busier and just kept on trucking huh we did yeah yep and i i kept the old link belt 98 for all the years that we worked there doing that and uh, you really learned how to load the ship with one of those with the, you're getting 10, 12, 15 loads a day of that stuff. Oh, jeez. Yeah, but, and it, it goes back to the transition of seeing how much things have changed through my career in the woods. You know, there, there was so many big outfits around that would have everywhere from 5 to 15 to 20 sides. Like, uh, I remember the last summer I worked at McDougal Brothers. I believe they had 21 yarder sides going. Jeez. Yeah. And, you know, and I don't know how many Christian and Sir Camp and Rookard and all those people had going, but there was a, a lot of activity. Like when you'd pull into Dinks and Oak Ridge to go into the beer store, well, you kind of almost had to find a parking spot because the parking lot would be full of crummies. That's funny. Yeah. I didn't think about that, though, Brett. There were some pretty big outfits, huh? Yes, there were. And there were quite a few of them. Wow. And uh, it seemed like almost everybody going had at least two two yarder sides, if if not more. Huh. But, but yeah, now... uh, it seems like the, the bigger outfits around, of course, rice, you know, hats off to them. They still have quite a few yarders going and managed to have enough crew form and everything to evidently make things proficient, you know, but it's, uh, it's amazing the stuff that a lot of the outfits are shovel logging and tethering. Now we had a, never in a million years considered you know, get the piece of equipment on some of that ground, but with the machinery now with, uh, well, like you build a lot of hitches for tether machines and stuff. Well, it just, it is still unfathomable to me to see a machine on some of the ground that they get on. Cause I'm used to just sitting on a flat landing in an old line machine. And, uh, God, if I get on a 6% slope, well, I got about half the seat up my ass. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, because those just had them big drive chains, didn't they, going down to the finals? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's a little uh, a little sketchy. Mm-hmm. You know, the crazy yep. part, though, too, for me, Brett, is I, <clears throat> I get out and I see quite a bit of tethering or these leveling shovels and the bunchers, you know, with the leveling cabs. And I think, oh, you know, these things are built for this ground. 
And then, mm-hmm. like, I went out and I took some photos of uh, my buddy Cody that works for Hart, and he was logging with that 568. And I, I thought, holy shit, he's out there in a flat bottom. This guy's nuts. Yeah. You know, because it's, it's not a tilter. So I was like, well, this dude's insane. But, you know, you know, Cody, yeah. he's very good at what he does. Yeah. And I've, uh, I've always hung nicknames on people for some reason. And, it's one of those things where uh, if you got a nickname, you know that you know it's uh, you're on my favorable side. Yeah, which you know it doesn't mean shit to a lot of people. But anyway, Cody's one of those kids that I have so much praise for him because of his uh, fortitude and desire to do things and and his natural abilities. But yeah, uh, I'm assuming the job you were talking about was on Minnow Creek. Yeah, that's one of them. Yeah, and uh, he just, uh, I don't know, I think it, when he gets in a machine, it should have another seat sitting right in front of the seat that he's sitting in because I, I believe it takes a set of balls that big to get on some of that ground. Right, or like some, yeah, there needs to be some way to tie them things down. Yeah, <laughs> yep. And he told me, you know, it's one of those things that, well, the job needs done, and he'd rather be sitting on some more level ground, but the job needs done, so here I am. Yeah, he's one of those guys. I, I got a mountain of respect for him, and yeah. you know, there's a lot of guys in the industry, but he's definitely one that comes to mind pretty quick. And on top of it all, he is a damn good person. Yep. Yep. He's one of the – I'd mentioned earlier about, you know, being so fortunate to – meet and make a lot of friends and stuff and cody is definitely one of those that uh is top shelf there yeah all around good dude you know a lot of people like that though brett it seems like i I, I see some of the people you're talking to and go you know brett seems to surround himself with really good folks well i'm I'm fortunate enough to where they don't run me off (laughs) (laughs) but no i have been I've been one of the luckiest people on the face of the earth to meet a lot of people that I have. And, uh, like somebody that works with Cody that I have all the praise in the world for is Tyson Bell. Mm-hmm. He, he's, uh, he's one of those guys that if he wants to do it, he's going to do it well and be top in his class at doing it, you know, what, wh- whatever it is. But, but yeah, there, there is such an endless list of people that I could sit here for hours and think of that, that I've met through the years and made friends of and have so much respect for that just due to the fact of my pick of what, uh, what I do for a living. Right. You know, that's like uh, a welder I know. Oh, you know? yeah, yeah, that guy. <laughs> he's pretty yeah. sketchy. Yeah, yeah, Speaking right. Speaking of welding, Brett, does Mike G still have that D8? Uh, we just, well, the one uh, we had a few years ago that was painted up all nice and pretty, we'd actually sold it. But our last D8 that we called the Work Cat that uh, was Dad's absolute pet, well, we, we just sold it to David Evenson. That uh, butter yarder. So, for the first time since we've started the outfit, we don't have a big cat anymore. 
Well, I but, mean, technically, you probably don't really need one doing these farmer jobs. No. Yeah. Uh-uh. Nope. We got the 527, and with that six-way blade on it, it just, uh, you know, it's not for digging rock or rolling out old growth stumps or anything, no. you know, being the owners of it. Well, yeah. I suppose, <laughs> you know, you get the right employee, they could do anything with yeah, it. But, for. If they don't break but, it, they'll shit on it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then be mad at you because it broke. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Copy. But, but no, we just, uh, it's just a little overkill for what we're doing. And so we decided that it, it's still, uh, part of the package there with that TY 90 as far as moving it goes and stuff. So David was gracious enough, gracious enough to buy it. And so there that thing goes. That's cool. I do kind of want yeah. to bounce back uh, real quick, Brett, to some people that you've met. <clears throat> and <laughs> my question for you is who has, do you think has been one of the most influential people on your career that you've met? Uh, not including my dad or brother. Correct. Uh, probably Lester McClure. Okay. Yeah. He, uh, I, old school people would definitely know him. Right. You know, he's really well known back in the day, but he's, uh, semi-retired now. But, uh, yeah, there's, there was so darn many people, you know, with, uh, the way things were back when I started, you could, you could work a week someplace and somebody might offer a nickel more an hour and so you would work for them. And then somebody would offer a little more or they'd be working on nicer ground or have nicer timber stuff. So you'd go to work for that outfit. But then when it all ended up, you'd go back to work for, for who you originally were for like, uh, Elvin Carter, I uh, worked for him three different times. I should have just stayed there, but <laughs> I had to see just how green that grass was on the other side of the fence. That's but, funny. Yeah, and I got a lot of got to meet a lot of people there working with him. And uh, then, uh, oh, one of the old hook tenders I worked with back in the day, uh, Fred Johnson. He was he was a pretty good influence. He was one of them old slackline hook tenders from up in Washington that carried quite a reputation with him and uh, I was fortunate enough to get to work with him for a little while and uh, I, I just wish I'd have been old enough to realize I should have paid more attention yeah I mean <clears throat> I don't have as much life experience as you do but I'm oh, gonna be 33 next you year me an old bastard? nope I'm just saying you're more <laughs> experienced but I'm okay. starting to realize some of that nowadays Brett is like you know, you work with some of these guys and some people I worked with, you know, welding on the road and stuff. And mm -hmm. some of them really knew a lot of shit, you know, and I look back and I go, you know, I should have listened to this guy more and not this other guy, you know, but I guess that's, you know, it's part of learning and living life, I guess. Well, that's it, you know, and uh, if a person had a rewind button for life, everybody would be a millionaire. Oh, can you imagine? You know? And, and retired by the age of 30. Yeah. But, uh, but no, and that's, that's me to a T. You know, I, I wish the hell I'd have paid a lot more attention when I was younger and, uh, listen to what some of these old guys would say, you know, that, uh, had a lot of value to it. And, but 
I was too busy living life and <laughs> trying to trying to outrun the guy into the rig and you know and all that because uh, if you weren't the first one into the rig and well you had uh, odd sexual preferences <laughs> and ancestry and all of that so that's where uh, I I was just I, I was so worried about being lazy right yeah instead of just sitting back and paying attention and uh dad had a tender work for him years ago for for an outfit that uh dad said that guy is he is just lazy enough to where he's an excellent hook tender and i thought what the fuck does he mean by that (laughs) you know and yeah well after a little bit of maturity set in it was like Oh, okay. I see what he's saying now. That guy was just lazy enough to where he'd take a couple minutes and analyze things and save himself a shit ton of work. Right. And and like road changes and everything. Uh, I I don't think even all of the old slackline hook tenders I'd worked around that uh, were just top shelf reputation wise and everything else are quite the level that my brother Mike was as far as a slackline hook tender. He is one of those people that absolutely not afraid of hard work, but he would analyze things to where if you see him sitting back there, just watching the rig and looking across the hillside and stuff in the back end, it was like, well, he's back there fucking the dog, not doing anything until you realize, no, he's back there making that next road change in his head and saving himself a shit ton of steps. And, uh, so road change had come, which, uh, Oh, some outfits would be two and a half hours. They'd be totally happy with a slack line road change at that. Well, that road change might take 20, 25 minutes tops and, uh, you'd be back to logging. Wow. And, is just one of the things that Mike was so damn proficient at. And he, he wasn't one of them old hook tenders that had to have his little bitch by his side back there packing his coils and everything. You know, he did it all himself. But it was, uh, it goes back to being ashamed that I didn't pay more attention to what he did and what all them other guys did back in the day because there's such a wealth of knowledge in them. Well, that's the thing too, is like in this industry, there's nowhere you can go and buy a book or Google it and learn how to rig up a TY90. No, there's not. All that knowledge is locked away in these people, you know, like you guys and these other folks that are either getting out of it or deciding to retire or whatever. And it's, um, it's kind of sad, you know, that there's nothing like that you know for this industry it's kind of one of the big reasons i started this podcast is just to get this stuff you know like this conversation we're having today i wouldn't Mm -hmm. have learned any of this stuff if i hadn't talked to you you know and it's um it's cool i think to try and preserve some of this stuff for for time to come oh definitely you know and i uh i'm so fortunate the first quite a few years that uh we had the outfit. Well, dad would ride to work with me every day. And 
that was like when I'd stop at his place to pick him up in the morning, story time started. And so I got to hear so damn many stories through the years of being so fortunate to have uh, a king of the industry like dad ride to work with me, you know, hour and a half, two hours, right. and just tell me these stories. They are so priceless, you know, and uh, of his day's yard or logging, or uh, it, it, logging with the wooden trees instead of the steel towers, right. you know, because that's what dad did for years was uh, topped and rigged spar trees and was pretty well known for it down on the down around Mapleton and Florence and stuff. And, but, uh, they're just, those stories are soon going to be lost. And fortunately dad's telling them stories on Facebook, a few of them, yep. and, uh, Peggy rush. She's documenting them and, uh, she's a journalist. So, she's going to be able to put them in book form. So at least the, the verbal end of it won't be totally lost. Yeah. No. And that's yeah. part of why I wanted to have you on first, Brett is to kind of introduce big Dick to everyone on the podcast. Um, I gotta, I gotta call him and set it all up, Brett, but I want to start doing segments with him and I want to call him uh tales from the tail holes with big Dick Gilkison. Oh, that would be phenomenal. You know, and just get him on, like, first time, you know, just hear his story, where he came from, and where he started, and how long he's been logging, and then, you know, however many he feels like doing after that, I just want to sit down and hear those stories, because, like you said, they're they're priceless, you know, and my dad has the same kind of stories, too, but not from that long ago, you know. Right. Yeah, you know, and it, it, uh, it makes me think of... Uh, how I wished I'd have grown up 25 or 30 years before I did to see the changes in the industry and be able to work around the, the wooden trees and stuff back in the day and all the hard work involved and everything, but the feeling of accomplishment at the end of the day. But, uh, as it turns out, I grew up in my own era of, being fortunate enough to see the steel towers and uh, the transition of equipment, you know, and working around the cable loaders and the big slack line towers and stuff that like when we very first started, well, the 009 we bought was actually our second choice of yarders because the first one we, we actually had the deal made on it, had the job for it and everything, but uh, the we couldn't find a shovel or couldn't arrange the financing. I can't remember the particulars on the shovel, but we couldn't find it. And then uh, I don't know if we come to our senses or what, but we'd actually uh, had a deal met, made on a BU-99, mm. which that's uh, uh, I think there's, very few people out there of the newer generation that realize how big a BU-99 is. I think uh, Wayne Stone had his at Gate Creek a few years ago, and uh, it was not a real common yarder back in the day, but they were they were around quite a bit. But uh, now it's like if you see one of those, it's just unbelievable 
how huge it is. It's it's a three piece move. You you have to move the carrier in the on one load and the tube on the other unless you can get it situated just right to move it on the carrier and then the hoist on one low boy and the lines on another. But those days are completely gone as far as uh, the three-piece yarder moves and all that, you know, but I was fortunate enough to be able to grow up in that time to, or to, to see that where like moving day would come. Well, you'd either have to get two big shovels or a boom truck or something like that to take the tube off of a burger, like an M3 slacker to move it on the highway and then pull all the lines off of them or a 208 where I don't think a person ever got them legal to move on the highway <laughs> or uh, like BU 98. I can remember uh, going to work with dad uh, on a Sunday because we never worked Saturdays there at McDougal's, but they had their BU 98. Well, we went to work on a Sunday and uh, we moved their, their BU 98 from uh, the North Fork over at West Burr, moved it up over the top of Oscar Hyde out to Cougar Reservoir Junction, and then up the highway, guts, feathers, and all to Deer Creek. <laughs> and we just took the cab and the skid and shiv out, and still it was, I think, until you dropped the tube down into the transport mode there, which had a different set of ears back on the trunnion. I think they were still like 15 feet high or something <laughs> like that, but uh, just bombed right up the highway with it, you know, miles an hour, but man, what a different day that was. If we'd have got caught doing that, you know, we'd all still be in jail. Yeah, probably. But it, but it was so common, you know, everybody had them great big old slack lines back then. A lot of O forty sixes and stuff like that that I just I uh I feel like that was one of the luckiest parts of my life getting to work around those great big slack lines and then kind of being a tramp in my early years, well I gotta see a lot of them and work around a lot of them. Right. I think there is kind of some value to that too, because I kind of tramped around, you know, different welding outfits for a while and mm-hmm. I feel like like you said, you get to learn <clears throat> you know what the wrong way to do stuff is from some of that yeah. and you take away some of the good stuff and i feel like it gives you a lot more rounded experience than just sticking with one outfit the whole time exactly yeah yep you're uh you're totally right i mean it's not quote unquote traditional i'm doing air quotes right now i know you can't see me but it seems like uh anymore there's not much tradition to much of anything no, there's not. Nope. And uh, there's there's a few people around, you know, that remain loyal to their job for, you know, obvious reasons, wages and benefits and stuff. But uh, it is uh, it's such a totally different world because, uh, like, you figure all the logging sites I talked about back in the 80s when everything was going strong and how many yarders everybody had you know imagine the amount of people it took you know there was usually at least eight to ten people to operate a tower side right and that many 
logging sites for all these people, you know, and all but two of those people were ground labor, you know, the yarder and the shovel operator. Yeah. And so, you know, it's like uh, Nelson Brothers, they have such a beautiful fleet of trucks and, I mean, absolute top-notch equipment and everything, but uh, I know they've, they've talked about, you know, having problems finding enough drivers and stuff to fill every seat and they have their commitments just like everybody else. But when we, uh, finished our last job up there on Max Burr on Gate Creek, we had, uh, I believe three people not counting me and Mike working for us. We had, uh, pumpkin running the processor and chasing, and then I would, bounce out and chase when he was processing and then uh, two guys out on the rigging that you know we we give them a little bit of a bonus to stick around until we finish the setting but uh we should have had four guys out on the rigging and a chaser and and uh, it just it wasn't there because i believe one of our huge achilles heels that never was an issue back in the day was the fact that we drug tested before we'd we'd hire somebody right and uh that eliminates sad to say but it eliminates 90 percent of the workforce now if if you drug test huh that's wild It, it, it is it is a really sad state of affairs you know and we we uh we got tired of buying drug tests and for people that would go in and take it and say, well, I should have passed it and they wouldn't. So anyway, we'd tell them, well, go take your drug test. And if, uh, if you pass it, we'll reimburse you. And, uh, anyway, so that, that would eliminate a whole bunch of people if they found out they was going to have to be out of pocket. Right. You know, even if we wouldn't hire them, we'd reimburse them. But, it just is such a stat, sad state of affairs. The the drug situation and the lack of worth work ethic out there nowadays. Did you ever think you'd see a time where there's logging outfits that don't own yarders? I I never really did. No. the The closest I ever thought was a neighbor of mine that I had back in the nineties. Well, he just had a little John Deere cat and would yard logs, do his own cutting and yarding and everything. And, uh, hire a self loader to come get, you know, three loads a week or whatever he Mm, would produce. And that was as close as I ever thought I'd see. Yeah. It's crazy how much things have changed. I, you know, I thought talking with you today that it would be, you know, pretty wild to, to hear your story and hear how much the industry has changed, but it's a lot more than I expected. Mm-hmm. You know? So it's, it's pretty crazy. It's neat to, I, you know, I guess it's neat, but not a whole lot we can do about it, but it's cool to hear, you know, your perspective and where you came from and, and all of that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And like I say, you know, I feel so fortunate to come up through it when I did Right, because uh, the valuable people uh, that I got to meet, you know, and uh, then it seemed like when I started in the woods of uh, 
you'd get on a rigging crew, probably one out of every five rigging crews had an old guy that would be like in his late thirties or early forties. And I thought, how's that old bastard get out of the crummy, let alone lace his boots up. <laughs> and, uh, anyway, they'd go out there and, you know, when I started, it was all like inch chokers and seven eighths chokers, unless you, you had a carriage on there and then it was three quarter inch by 40 foot chokers, you know, but, uh, that's what I grew up doing was ground pounding. And so you really learned how to pull an inch choker back through the brush. And a lot of these guys nowadays, you know, they're, they're hard workers and they do an excellent job with the sky car as long as the turn leaves going straight up out of the bed. But if they had to fight an old growth, butt repeatedly all through the day up to the guy line circle to cut it around a stump or something like that, I believe, 99% of that is lost. Yeah, you're probably right. The guys just don't have experience doing it anymore. Exactly. Yeah, and it's not for lack of hard work on their part. The people that are still out there doing it is just the lack of experience doing it. Right. <laughs> yep. But yeah, and it's, uh, it was such hard work and, uh, unforgiving work and everything, but I, I wouldn't trade it for anything, you know, cause like I say, I was, uh, I always got the front choker, which that was, that was something else was, uh, the front choker always got the, the big log or the reach or the tight one or something like that. The middle one, it got, you know, a nice log and the back one got the one that brushed out the next turn. But, uh, Anyway, it seemed like I always got the front choker and 130 pounds pulling back an inch choker. Or if you worked around some of them old stubborn superintendents, you had an inch and an eighth choker. Oh, geez. And I know all the people that know me nowadays would look at me and think, well, that's scrawny little bastard couldn't pull back an inch choker. Well, <laughs> I actually used to. <laughs> you right. know, but I don't think I could now. Well, I know I couldn't nowadays, but, but I, I would do that all day long for eight or nine hours and then, uh, go race motocross all weekend. Oh, there you go. That sounds yep. like fun though. Yeah. And, uh, be ready to go to work Monday. So Brett, the last thing for you tonight, cause I don't want to hold you up all night, but, um, I want to kind of touch on you like how oh, I don't want to touch on you. That's weird. Um, but, not, uh, <laughs> how'd you like working with family? You don't want me to turn around again, do you? Well, <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead, Jason. <laughs> how'd you like working with big Dick and Mike for your whole career? Cause I know some people can work really well with family and others that it just doesn't work out. So how, how has that been over the years? You know, once again, the, this podcast has been kind of an eye opener to me as well, as far as uh, looking back on my career and my experiences. But I honestly don't think I could have been any luckier whatsoever to have worked with those two people throughout 95% of my career. And it goes back to working for those different outfits that, uh, I got to see the assholes 
and the good people, the dumb shits and the sharp ones. Right. And, uh, through it all, you know, I think those two people are the absolute cream of the crop for me to learn from and been able to work with throughout my career. That's cool. Cause I know <clears throat> at a previous job of mine, you guys brought in probably the grapple off of the old three thirty, and um, mm-hmm. you guys were there for maybe a half hour, 40 minutes, but Brett, I, I'm not lying to you, man. I went home that night and I thought I got punched in the guts. My, my sides were sore from laughing so damn hard being around the three of you for 40 minutes. I was just the one standing there not saying anything. No. <laughs> but I just, you know, there's a dynamic there with the three of you guys that it, it really shows that, you know, you all care about each other and it seems like you're all after a common goal of just being good, honest people. Oh, extremely. Yeah. So it's just, um, yeah. it's been a pleasure just being and knowing you guys, you know, and I'm looking forward to getting big dick on here and, uh, you know, maybe I'll talk to old Mike G and see if he wants to come on here too. Oh, that would, those two would be extremely stellar for you. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, to, it kind of, kind of touching on that, you know, you was talking about, uh, me touching on you or you touching on me or however you're, yeah, however you preference. Yeah. Well, <laughs> when, uh, and those grapples, well, yeah. I got to know quite a few people from cat caterpillar engineering from Peoria and wherever their works department was and stuff and made some good friends of them. Well, they had sent one of the engineers up to ask me, you know, what about would make a better machine for a Caterpillar log loader. And I, after coming from a line machine, I said, well, some way to graduate the grapple speed would be absolutely great. And they said, well, that's probably one of the things that we've heard most from operators is instead of just having off and on on the grapples, you know, open and close that, have some way to graduate it. And so I, I can't by any means whatsoever take full credit for it, but I did have a little part in it of them coming up with the sliders on their levers and for graduating the grapple speeds. But one of the engineers, which was one of the top engineers was standing out there and he was looking at the shovel and everything. And he looks at me and he goes, well, what would you think about rear entry? And I said, well, buddy, you know, I, I've never tried it, but, uh, as long as I'm the pitcher, I guess I'm willing to give it a whirl. And <laughs> anyway, I guess I, very well. <laughs> yeah, I misunderstood the narrative and, uh, Mike Coyne is from Caterpillar. He just looked at me and shook his head and went back and set the pickup. But you know, it, it took me a couple of minutes. I realized then he was talking about a rear entry cab, Right. but anyway, that, that kind of shocked me, you know, but, uh, anyway, and those grapples that you welded on were actually, uh, the first set of cat grapples that they had actually made and, uh, produced. They'd, they'd had a couple more experimental sets, but that set that you welded on is actually on the cover of the Caterpillar brochure. Oh, that's for cool. grapples. That's but, cool. yeah, kind of my claim to fame, I guess. Yeah. The cat grapple guy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not that it means anything, but. 
No, no it is cool though. Like even just being a part of that process of, um, you know, refining the tools that you <laughs> use every day is pretty cool. Yeah. Yep. But, yeah. I, you know, I, I keep going back to it, but I'm so goddamn lucky to have come up when I did and seen the things I have and still going, you know, and fortunately I've, I've had a couple of really bad logging accidents and, uh, that have knocked me down for a while, but nothing that's life crippling or anything, but, uh, what hurts you make you stronger, I guess. And, uh, like there, you know, a few years ago, as you know, I almost lost my vision. Right. And, and, uh, I've got that back where I can, I can still go hunting and load logs. And I guess that's why they put a cab guard on a truck. But anyway, uh, I can still do that and, and still enjoy what I do. You know, it, just almost being 60 years old. Well, uh, I think that's, that's a huge thing is to still love what you do. Yeah. I think, uh, from what I heard about that accident, Brett, you got pretty lucky. Oh yeah. I got extremely lucky. That hydraulic oil under pressure does. It's not, (laughs) it's not very forgiving. No, uh, broke my nose, shattered the orbit around my eye, knocked the eye halfway out. And, uh, anyway, I just, uh, like I say, almost lost both eyes, but, uh, I'm looking good now. Or, excuse me, seeing well now. (laughs) (laughs) I know, that was was the uh, joke there for a while. Brett was one T and now with both eyes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one eye and one teeth. <laughs> no, I just, uh, I, I guess uh, what the podcast boils down to is I am honestly, I feel one of the luckiest people in, in, the, in the industry to have met all the people I know and uh, made some invaluable friends out of a lot of them. And, uh, it just, I I don't think that working at a grocery store or anything like that, you know, not that there's anything wrong with that. That's that's great, but uh, I I feel so damn lucky to have grown up through it when I did and met the people I have. Right. You know, it's like uh, Tony Folio. He was just a little kid that would stand in the truck and look out the back window and watch me load with the link belt 98 when he was a little kid. Well, as it turns out, he bought two of my link belts from me. That's cool. And, uh, he's been a phenomenal, huge friend ever since. I keep trying to get Tony O on here, but, uh, he keeps kind of thinking about it. Oh yeah. That's Tony O. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He is, uh, he is one of the absolute best people in the industry, I think. You know, even though he's had his health issues and stuff, well, that's a man that I have the utmost respect for. Yeah, there's a lot of good dudes. Tony's definitely one of them. Yes, yes, he is. Brett, if you yep. have time, I think a good way to end off the podcast would be um, 
one of your most memorable stories of, uh, you know, from the days when you're working with Dick and Mike? Oh, boy. You know, there's, there's just so darn many of them. I guess one of the most memorable ones would be when we first started. There's not a lot of humor or anything. It's just kind of a puff our chest out story, but uh, trying to get started. And we had that old 009 Medill, and the very first setting we're on was uh, it was half a tree, and the way that which you know you could only log around the square lead, and then you had to turn the yard around, log around the other way. Well, we uh, we were scrimping and saving. You know, we'd rounded up all of our own hand tools from home to have enough tools on the landing to make things go and we had a couple old wore out saws that we started with and everything well we had to turn the yarder and man we didn't want the crew up there to have to pay their wages and everything because we got finished yarding late friday afternoon so me mike and dad went up there and tore down and rigged up made the new layout because the way the hillside laid and got the rig and run out there and yarded a few turns before Monday morning just to make goddamn sure we were going Monday morning so when the crew got there they could just go right to logging and turn the sky black with logs but that's what the three of us had done our, our whole time there was uh, just tried to make the most out of things was just the three of us and when uh when the crew was there to help us, well, that was just an added benefit. You know, we, we tried to make things good for our crew and treat our good people good and uh, provide jobs for everybody. You know, and I think that that's probably one of the best things that we've got from it is providing for people and uh, keeping keeping us busy and doing what we loved. Yeah. It's just cool that you, you got to do it all those years with, with your brother and your dad there. It's that's something not a lot of people have that experience. Yes. Yep. And, uh, I'm, I'm so darn lucky that the three of us just loved working together, you know, and difference. Oh yeah. And, And dad's at that age where, uh, he's 86 years old this year, but like we had him come out and build a little road for us and, uh, put a big fill in on a culvert and, and stuff like that. And, uh, he just, you, you couldn't hardly see the cat for all the teeth of smiling <laughs> because he was still out there being productive and doing what he loves, you know? And, uh, that's the way it's been for the last, I don't know, the whole lifetime that I've known him is uh, he's instilled that in me and Mike in loving what we do for a living and what a better occupation in the time that we grew up in in doing what we're doing. Yeah, I mean, really, you nailed that one. I mean, yeah, you've done some awesome stuff and you're still kicking ass, so ain't nothing wrong with that. Yep, yep, and we're just uh, loving what we're doing. Well, cool, man. I really appreciate yep. your time tonight, Brett. I know it's a Friday, and you're hopefully going to be packing out some oh. gear with some buddies this weekend. So, 
Well, I, I can't think of a better way to spend a Friday night than bullshitting with you. Well, I appreciate it. I know you're a little nervous before we get on here, but I don't think we're going to have to edit uh, anything out. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, it was an absolute pleasure. I appreciate it, Brett. I but, will, um, mm, this will probably get posted on Monday and I'll have to send you a link to it where you can listen. Okay. Yeah. We're, we're done now. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I, when uh, we logged for Roseboro, well, that's not my wish that I touched on a little bit is uh, the people I met that were, that had come over from Arkansas with Roseboro. Oh, wow. Like the Smith boys. Gotcha. I, I got, got to meet most all the Smith brothers. And uh, they were just old Arkies, which, you know, uh, some people think, oh, fucking Arkies or Okies, something like that. <laughs> yeah. these, these people were, I mean, the cream of the fucking crop. And Sonny Brown, which was Lester McClure's father-in-law, well, they all, they all had that goddamn murky drawl that yep. I just, I could sit there for hours and listen to them talk. And like, uh, uh, oh, uh, shit, Wade, Wade Crawford, he was one of the old darkies that uh, his dad had come over with the original regime uh, from Roseboro, Arkansas. And, uh, so he lived in Finn rock, okay. which was Roseboro's, uh, logging camp. That's and cool. which, uh, I mean, probably 99% of the people out there now don't even realize that Finn rock was actually a logging camp on the back side of the river from the Finn rock store, which was a Roseboro company store. Okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. And you know where you cross the bridge and then you turn to go up power line. Yeah. And you turn to go down to that little boat ramp. Mm-hmm. Well, that little road that runs up through the trees right there was where all the, the uh, houses were. Gotcha. I've always wanted and to then, go up there and poke around. Yeah. Oh, I tell you what, there's such a wealth of history up there. And there's a book, uh, my dad would know what it is, but it's about the history of Roseboro. But like there's the two mile where March side takes off mm-hmm. and crosses the creek. Well, we logged that unit. Matter of fact, the first, I think, uh, not the first five, but there was five units we logged on the left side of Quartz Creek up to, uh, March, March side where it takes off. Mm-hmm. And right at the, there's a little flat right across the road from where Marchside takes off. Well, that was a homestead. I didn't know that. Yep. And then you get up to Wyckoff Junction, bottom Wyckoff Junction, where the gate is. Mm-hmm. Well, there was actually a camp there, too. And old Benny Farrell, who was truck boss for Roseboro there, the last that they had their trucks. Well, uh, his mom was the cook at the, at the camp there. No shit. At at the Wyckoff Gate, there was a cookhouse, a few houses, and I can't remember what else was there. But uh, I mean, that stuff just is priceless to me. Oh yeah, me too. That's <clears throat> like uh, I guess there used to be an old truck shop somewhere up on Gustina, like a uh, Gate Creek side. Yeah, at, at an old shop. 
Yeah. And uh, oh, okay. before Bumper, right there where Old Shop took off on that left-hand corner, mm-hmm. if you looked over the edge, there was still two old dump trucks there. Okay. I know where and, that, like an old Mac or something. Yeah. I think one okay. was old Chevy or something like that. Yeah, and the old round was, fender, like late 40s. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's where the shop was. And then out uh, Cougar Springs Road, there was an old, I think it burned up in the fire, but there was an old trailer out there that had uh, all the tool bins in it and everything, old wooden trailer. That's cool. And uh, anyway, uh, yeah, there, you know, it's like uh, Quartz Creek. I, I basically grew up up there. Even though lived in Cottage Grove my whole life, you know, and everybody else around Cottage Grove was going up Mosby Creek and uh, all that, you know, and up London hunting and everything, growing up mm-hmm. and shooting guns and everything. <laughs> I, I spent all my time up Quartz Creek and up to McKenzie. Huh. And so, so I have a, a wealth of friends up there, gotcha. you know, over, over the last 50 years. And, yeah. uh, Anyway, so there was, at one time, I don't think there was a rock or stick that that I didn't know up uh, on Roseboro ground. I bet. You know, that's you know? I used to spend a lot of time up on Quartz Creek when uh-huh. I was a kid. Just, um, I thought it was so cool that you could go up the McKenzie and come out in Westford, you know. And there's yeah. three or four different ways you can get around up there. And, I, you know, it's like. I was a kid. I needed to get out of town and clear my head. I'd just go up there and drive around and look at the grouse and the elk and. Exactly. <clears throat> yep. Yep. Like wagon wheel path, you know, that's, uh, you know, where that is up there. It's divided between he, he, grasshopper, Paul Creek and Quartz Creek. Yeah. Well, uh, dad had worked up there for XL, you know, and, and uh, I think Mike set chokers up there in fact, in uh, 77 or 78 and I hadn't been up there for years and then uh, went up there a few years ago fuck I didn't even recognize it because timber being a crop will uh, all that reprod that was around Wagon Wheel Junction is now timber again yeah yeah it was uh, pretty damn eye opening you know (laughs) to see how things grow back and well, that's the crazy part, too, is now the stuff that's burned up there. Like, when I was a kid, I used to go, you know, with my dad to work all the time, and he did a lot of uh, tree planting and stuff when I was younger. I had crews mm-hmm. and stuff, and he still doesn't want to go back up the river because uh, a lot of that stuff that burned up, you know, him and his crews planted. Well, me and Molly took a drive up there, you know, when they first opened it back up, probably a couple, three weeks after. Mm-hmm. And when you could actually drive up to McKenzie Bridge, and uh, I tell you what, going back to that emotional thing, it was so extremely emotional for me that I, I was so embarrassed. You know, I should have went up there by myself, right. but uh, I was pretty well bawling my eyes out because, uh, like, oh, the whole first part of that, the top of Lynn Gasher Ridge. Well, mm-hmm. we'd logged all that, you know, and then uh, I got that part done. But anyway, uh, 
just so much of that up Quartz Creek. Yeah. You know, that's where I grew up, and it, it just it all burned up. And then, uh, god damn, all the people that I knew up the river that had lost their homes. Yeah. You know, and it's just unbelievable. I think, I think my dad, him and his crews planted a lot of that reprod that burned up on Lingasher. Oh, really? Yeah. I'll be damned. Probably, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, because the whole ridge cap there, uh, matter of fact, right at the end where you look uh, from the old truck shop, uh, Roseboro's old shop right there when you start up Quartz Creek, mm-hmm. you go past it, and then you look up that first draw to the left. Yeah. Well, one of our landings was up there, and we were tail halted clear over in that Forest Service old growth off of Pond Road. Oh, crazy. But Mike figured we had 10,000 feet of skyline out on Good that setting. Lord. Yeah. <laughs> uh. That's quite a quite a stretch out there because the way the ridge lined up and everything. Uh, a long to make, anywhere. Yeah. To make a perfect road line, we would have had to have hung right in the middle of the McKenzie down there by Hamlin <laughs> next shop. And anyway, which, uh, I don't know, fuck, how many people know who Hamlin Neck was? You know, and anyway, uh, that's, that's about where we were hung, you know, about even with them. But, uh, we, uh, ended up having to run the hall back out to a stump down towards the bottom of the unit and then pulling the skyline over to the side there about probably 500 feet because oh, wow. there was no, no place to hang. Yeah. Huh. But, uh, you know, so, so many experiences like that up there, just rough logging that took such an imagination on Mike's part. Yeah. So and, Mike was side riding for you guys when you're. He, he was hooked tendon, but by then he was, his knees were so totally shot that, uh, he would, he would do most of it himself because I don't know where he got his threshold of pain, but, uh, he, he'd still pack coils and everything, even though Jeez. both legs bone to bone, you know, yeah. but anyway, no, and that, that road change, he, uh, he had all the, the tag strung and everything and the eye laying there in the middle of Quartz Creek. Well, when we, uh, finished the prior road, we slacked the skyline down, slacked it off a little bit. And he had the eye laying right underneath where the skyline laid down for that road. So he just went over there with this half inch breaker bar and, uh, undid the shackle on one eye, bolted the other shackle into it, and we picked the skyline back up. Wow. And there was the road change. But, I mean, you know, that's just, that's just Mike. Yeah. You know, and, uh, he's beyond phenomenal as far as thinking and everything goes, but I, I could ramble on for hours, you know, about this stuff, which, I need to sometime. Yeah, no, whenever you're feeling like it, let me know. And then uh, we'll just get you back on the podcast if you want, Brett. I mean, well, I know I'm not the only person that's going to enjoy listening to you ramble about logging well, stories. Well, thank you. you know? Yeah, and I, I think most of them would be in praise of Mike and Dad. Right. Because uh, 
I spent, uh, I guess now, you know, the last, I don't know, 40 years, I spent on the landing loading logs and observing, but basically running the landing, you know, and doing the rigging up the tower and stuff like that. But uh, all the stuff out in the brush, that was, that was Mike's baby. Right. But, uh, but no, I, you know, there's none of it I'd trade for anything. Yeah. Because, uh, I, I feel me and Mike and dad were the perfect combination. Yeah. It sure seems like it. Yeah. Well, one of these days I'll have to buy a couple more microphones and just have you guys all over to the house. Oh boy. Wouldn't that be a I don't know what whiskey you drink, but I'll buy a bottle and we can just sit down and ramble. Well, I, I was drinking uh, Pendleton, but uh, Dad tightwaddedness kind of fed <laughs> in and started drinking eight seconds because it's the same thing, only about 10, 12 bucks cheaper of jug. Right. <laughs> anyway, yeah, that's, that's what I had to do before uh, the podcast started. Copy that. <laughs> <laughs> 